Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. I don't know the page number. Just go to the end and go back to the left. You'll find it there. It's pretty easy if you're using the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 20. I'll start reading in verse 1 there. Follow along with me. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are the one is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the like of fire. And, the, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Lord, we just, again, come before you and we're humbled by your word, Lord. We're humbled by the, the, amazing, um, the, the amazing words that you show us, Lord, the vision that you gave to John and and now are relating to us, we're, we're amazed at how complex it seems, Lord. We, I, I Lord, am just overwhelmed by uh, the mystery of it, Father. And we pray that even through the mystery, even through what we may or may not understand, uh, Lord, that we would, we pray, see Jesus seated on his throne. We would see what is clear here for us as your church to see. Uh, Lord, and rest in the reality of our soon coming King. Uh, Father, we just pray that you'd uh, lead us by your spirit through this word together. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.
many years ago, um, over in the overflow there behind the old sanctuary, we were having an ordination council. Um, if you're not familiar with, with the Baptist way of, of doing things, an ordination council is, is where church leaders, elders, pastors come together um, and examine, if you will, question, if you will, a man who is being called to serve as an elder or a pastor, someone who's being called into the ministry. And that ordination council is responsible to see, basically, in that small, short setting, uh, if, if this man is qualified to serve in that capacity. And so we were having this ordination council back there in the overflow. I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, I don't remember who it was we were counseling, who it was that was being examined. It could have been, you know, one of two or three guys that have come through our church and are now serving as pastors in different places. But here's what I remember about that. I was seated kind of on the side of the table, and Brother Toby Stone, many of you might remember Brother Stone, Toby pastored in this association for a long, long time. Toby was big as a mountain. He was just a big man, all right? Big hands. I remember he could just engulf my hand when he shook my hand. And we were we were at that table, and he looked at the candidate, and, and, you know, we're asking him about his understanding of God, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, his understanding of man and sin and the resurrection, the virgin birth, all these things. And, and Brother Stone looked at this uh, candidate for ordination and he said, do you believe in the, tree, in the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial return of Christ? And I went, oh, my word. I'm, I'm one of the guys who's doing the examination. I said, I got no idea where I stand on that. I, I, I don't know if I'm one of them, you know. I said, good grief. And I don't remember how the brother answered the question. Uh, it was good enough. Toby voted for the ordination, you know. He voted for it. But it was, it was an important point for Brother Stone to know where this man stood in his eschatology, where he stood on his understanding of, of end times and end things. Revelation chapter 20 is the reason we are just now going through the book of Revelation and not 30 years ago, okay? Just, just all right? This is the biggest reason, because I didn't know then how in the world I would have answered Toby's question. And I'm not a whole lot more certain today how I would answer that question than I was then. But Revelation chapter 20 is, has been cussed and discussed for about 2,000 years within the church, okay? It really has. What in the world do, what is the millennium? It's only mentioned here. It's only mentioned here. Millennium is, while we don't see the word millennium there, this understanding of this thousand-year reign and rule of Christ on the earth. Um, Here's what we know for certain. We've sung it. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. Buried, Jesus carried my sin far away. Rising, he justified freely forever those who put their faith and trust in him. And one day he's going to come again. Amen? We believe that. We know that. He will come. How he will come is the question, at least in Revelation chapter 20. All right? Now, since the beginning of the Christian faith, as you see in your sermon notes there, The church has understood and believed that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. If you don't know what what we believe here at Westwood, you should, especially if you're a member. It's in our Baptist faith and message. And it says there, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to an appropriate end. According to his promise, 
Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory in the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. That's, that's the promise that was given to us in the book of Acts. As those disciples watched Jesus ascend up into the heaven, the angel says, Men of Galilee, why are you looking into heaven? Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, he came first time in humility and in grace and secretly. Very, very few people knew he came. It will not happen that way the second time, right? We saw that in the chapter we just looked at. I saw heaven opened. That's John seeing heaven opened. Well, every eye will see him, it says earlier in the book of Revelation. Everyone will see him. And he comes on this white horse, faithful and true and righteousness, he judges and makes war. So when he returns, every eye will see him, it says in, John, in Revelation 1-7. So scripture says Jesus will return in power and glory. But now we get to Revelation chapter 20. And it's just complicated, all right? Now, it's more complicated than it probably needs to be in some ways, but I'll just tell you, it's, there's, there's some real challenges in Revelation chapter 20. Here's, here's something that we have to keep in mind. Ultimately, my understanding, if you will, my interpretation, my position and your position on Revelation chapter 20 really doesn't matter in the eternal scope of things. All right. Now, it really doesn't. One commentator said some people see Revelation 20 as the most important passage in the book. It's not. This chapter is not the most important chapter in the book of Revelation. It is important, as is every other chapter in the Bible. But it's not the most important. So there's no hills to die on here other than the hill that Jesus is going to return. All right. I'll just kind of put it that way. The opposition, the persecution, the death of believers... That's not final. That doesn't have the final word. All right? We'll see that. The tables will be turned. This world then and now sits in judgment of God's people, of God's kingdom, of God's word. Those tables will be turned. We will reign with Christ. You may not understand exactly what that means, but we will reign with Christ. At the end of time, evil will raise its ugly head one more time. And then we'll be crushed completely. Now, Satan will take some people down with him. Many will go down with him. But he will go down. All right? So here's, let's think first for just a second about the primary question that's really on the table here. And then think for just a second about the, the primary viewpoints, how they see that. So as we read through Revelation chapter 20... After the second coming of Christ, all right, after chapter 19, it seems to say that Christ will come and set up his kingdom in a visible way here on the earth. Seems to say that Satan will be bound and silenced and life on the earth will be filled with flourishing and and physical health and success and satisfaction in our work. We're going to look at some Old Testament passages in just a second that speak to that. Um... But then it also seems, based on what we will see, that there's still birth and there's still death. There's still sin in the hearts of people. And then there'll be one more battle with Satan and it'll be over. It, it, it seems to say that. Or some hold the position that, no, that's not what Revelation 20 says. That's not, what it, that's not the way we should understand it. 
that the language of this first portion of Revelation chapter 20 is symbolic. And it's symbolic of the whole period of time from Jesus' resurrection till when he comes again. All right? And then when Jesus does come, he will judge all his enemies at one time. And he will, he will throw them into the lake of fire. And believers will have glorified resurrection bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. So the question is this. Is there an intermediate stage between chapter 19 and chapters 21 and 22? Is there a physical, literal, intermediate stage where Jesus reigns on the earth? Or is it symbolic, if you will, of all of the church age from the first res- from Jesus' resurrection until he comes again. Well, your position, your eschatological position, your view of end times is going to determine how you answer that question. All right? Now, again, Jesus will return. All right? We're not questioning that. And so it depends on which camp you're in. All right? Now, if you are in what is called an amillennial camp, if you hold to an amillennial position, it doesn't mean that there's not a millennium. It just means that we're in it now. Amillennials hold that that time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming is, is the period of time that we're in. He is ruling and reigning now in heaven and is reigning on the earth in the lives of his people and in the lives of his church. So the kingdom of God was inaugurated, if you will, at Jesus' resurrection. And he's reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So there's kind of an already not yet tension in, in, in the amillennial position. They, the amillennialist will say we are in that kingdom now. We are enduring tribulation and suffering. But we're also enduring victory as the gospel goes forth and the church overcomes. And, and ultimately, he will come and consummate his kingdom. Now, here's another big point with the amillennial position. They hold that the promises to Israel that were made under the old covenant are fully fulfilled in the church. All right? So that those are fulfilled by Jesus in his church. Um, so they kind of, that's, that's, that's how you're going to view it if you hold an amillennial position. Now, you might be saying, well, wait a minute, Gerald, you just read the text, all right? And the text seems to be pretty straightforward. It says that after we see the heavens opened up and the white horse coming, and on him is a rider called Faithful and True, after Jesus' second coming, there is a millennial reign, it says, for a thousand years. And it says that there's going to be a final rebellion from Satan and those that he influences. And then there's going to be a great white throne judgment that we have at the end of chapter 20. And then there's going to be them, and then there's going to be this eternal state. Okay, if I refer to the eternal state, I'm talking about what we'll see in 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth forever. It seems to be pretty straightforward there. That's that's how it reads. And if you hold to that position, then you hold to what is known as a premillennial view. All right, that Jesus will return before the millennium. All right. Now you might be a dispensational premillennialist. Or you might be a historical premillennialist. Or you might be some other stripe or variety of a premillennialist, okay? Now, again, I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I think it's important for you to... And I've posted a couple of things this week. You, if you have not done any homework today, if this is the first time you've ever heard of a premillennialist, then you're going to be in the dark for, for a lot of what I talk about here for the next few minutes. So I hope you're not... Um, 
uneducated to some degree so that these terms that I use are just flying over your head, you know. Um, but if you're a dispensational premillennialist, then you believe for the most part, for the most part, that God works in different ways at different times. Okay? Because that's what the word dispensation means. And you believe for the most part that God has a different plan for Israel, for, for Old Testament Israel, for, for those who are descendants of Abraham by birth, and a different plan for the church. You, you, you will, for the most part, hold to that view. For the most part, you will believe that believers will be resurrected. Some of you will believe that they will be raptured out before Jesus returns. And then Jesus will return and reign during the millennium. And after the millennium, unbelievers will be resurrected and be judged, okay? And, and so you're going to hold basically to that. If you're a historical premillennialist, you're going to, and by the way, if you're a dispensational premillennialist, that's a relatively new viewpoint, all right? It was developed by a man named Darby in England, a Plymouth Brethren, and it did not come to the United States until after the Civil War. And you might be familiar with the Schofield Study Bible, J.I. Schofield. He is the one who basically took that dispensational understanding of premillennialism and made it popular here in the United States, but it's relatively new. Less than 200 years old. So, you're, you know, just, just so you understand that. Historical premillennials to say, well, we go back all the way to the early church. Justin, uh, 100 A.D., held to basically a, an understanding of historical premillennial. I can't even say it. I'm, I've said it. So, do, I want you to know how much sleep I've lost over this this week, okay? I've gone to sleep this week. Every night, thinking about thousand years, I've woken up, and you know, it, it's it's been kind of it's been comical in some ways. Susan probably thought I was having some kind of recurrence with Roy Williams this morning, because I walked into the to the living room after being out in the office early this morning. And I went, Shh. she said, "What's the matter?" I said, "The Dad Gum Millennium." <laughs> you sound like Roy Williams. I know. The dadgum millennium, okay, has, has, has been on my mind and heart for a long time, all right? But, so I, I, I digress. Historical premillennialists, some of them will hold to a literal thousand years. Many will not hold to a literal, it's just a long time. It's, it's a symbolic number like many of the numbers are in the book of Revelation. Ten times ten times ten. And, and so they may or may not hold to a literal thousand years. It's just a long time. Historical premillennialists also will differ for the most part on their understanding of the rapture. Not believing that the church will be raptured out before the great tribulation, but indeed the church will be called to go through the tribulation. And this idea that Paul talks about in Thessalonians of meeting the Lord in the air means we will just meet him in the air like we would meet a conquering king or a hero and come back into town with him at his return. We'll talk more about that later. So anyway, you might be, I doubt though, you might be a part of what's called post-millennialism. So you get this, there's amillennial, the premillennial, and post-millennial. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ will return after a millennium. But here's what post-millennialists hold. And I'll just read this. It's, it's from an article that I posted um, by Kenneth Gentry. Post-millennials expect that eventually the vast majority of men living will be saved. And that this will lead to a time, quote, of peace, a time of 
a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and nations. So post-millennials understand the kingdom of God is being extended now through the world, through the gospel being preached by the church, and it will have such an effect, basically, that this world will become a great place to live. Those are my words, not theirs, but that it'll be so Christianized that after that period of time, Christ will return. Again, not many people hold this view. Um, and it's lost popularity, I think rightly so. I think it's just a poor understanding of the whole picture in Scripture. Um, but that's just my opinion. So there's amillennial, premillennial, and postmillennial. So you want to know, right? So where are you, Gerald? What do you, what do you hold to? I hold to very, 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 very loosely a historical premillennial view. Now, two of the commentaries that I've used throughout my study in the book of Revelation have been by men who hold an amillennial view. And they are inerrantist. They are as conservative as the day is long. They are rock solid. In their, uh, they're just tremendous Bible scholars and teachers, and they hold to an amillennial view. I also have a couple that hold to a premillennial view of different, you know, different stripes and colors, if you will. But, and my reason for that, is, as we will see, is just what I just mentioned. If you just read the flow of what happens here in Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22, it's just the most natural flow. But I will tell you there are all kinds of problems. You could shoot holes in that position all day long if you wanted to, and I shoot them in there myself, okay? I said, man, I'm just not sure I can hold to that. But then on the other hand, well, I can hold to this, and I, I see that. So... Um, I'll be glad to talk with you. I'd welcome more conversations with you guys. And let's just, it won't take much for you to convince me otherwise. And I probably don't have enough bullets in my gun to convince you otherwise. But we can talk about it, okay? Let's just look at the passage for a minute. Revelation chapter 20. In the first three verses, we see that Satan is bound. All right? He is bound and put away. The angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now, we already saw an angel fall from heaven in Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel, it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft and from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And remember from that plague, men prayed to die and they couldn't because of the just the terrible pain and suffering that came from this angel who had a key and he opened it. This angel has a key and he closes it. All right. And notice that he comes with this key. That's a picture of authority. It always is in scripture. There's a, he has this authority. He comes with a key to the abyss. Now, Dr. Aiken points out that every time we see this term, the abyss used in the book of Revelation, it is a temporary place of incarceration. It's not it's not the, the lake of fire, okay? It's not permanent. It's not eternal hell. It's just a place. It's a place where even earlier in the Gospels, in Luke chapter 8, remember Jesus was casting out the demon that called himself Legion, and he said, please don't send us into the abyss. And says, send us into those pigs over in Luke chapter 8. So even the demons didn't want to go to this place. 
So it's this place of, of, of incarceration, if you will. He comes with the keys to the abyss and he comes with a great chain. And he exercises that authority. He overcomes the dragon, Satan, if you will, and puts him in. And I can't imagine what kind of fight this might have been. We don't know. I mean, this dragon, we're told earlier, had a tail large enough to sweep a third of the stars out of the heavens. So this is, this is no small little iguana. Okay? It's not a lizard that you grab by the tail. I, it doesn't tell us what kind of fight, and it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He was caught, bound, and incarcerated, it says, into this abyss. Now notice what the text says. The four names are given here to describe the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. All right? The dragon has been referred to, will be referred to 12 times in the book of Revelation. And it's meant to, to cause us terror. This is not something that we just fluff off. It's, to, it's meant to, he's powerful, he's cruel, he's dangerous, he's vicious, he's the dragon. But he is old in the sense that he is the ancient serpent who deceived in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and has been lying ever since. So he's that ancient serpent. He's the devil, diabolos in Greek. That means he's the slanderer, he's the accuser, he's the one who stood before God accusing the saints. I believe until what we saw in Revelation chapter 12. And then he is Satan. He is our adversary. He's the enemy. He's our opponent. One commentator said this. In this context, the list of names might almost be official as if a legal sentence is being read. So you stand before the judge, Gerald Glenn Hodges, and the name is read in full and the, and the sentence is pronounced. So one commentator said it's almost like this, this legal name, if you will, of Satan is being announced before he's thrown into prison. And look at the steps. He's bound. He's thrown into the pit. It is shut and it is sealed over him. So it seems from this text that his ability to carry out all that he's done for these millennia is stopped. There's an end to it. I mean, that's, that's what it appears as, as our, he is bound. Now, amillennialists will hold to the position that this binding is, is for the elect, those who are names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that this binding has been throughout the church age in one sense, okay? So from the foundation of the world, those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life are protected. That much is, amen. That is true. That is true. But this binding that we read about here seems more than that. Because part of the argument that would come against that view is that, well, clearly he is not totally bound. He is like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour, Peter tells us. All right? He's not locked up and silenced completely. That would be the argument against that. This text seems to say more than he's being restrained. It seems to say that he will be absolutely locked away, thrown into a pit, not just blocked or thwarted, but done away with for this period of time. All right? It seems to say that. Because he doesn't deceive anybody when he's in the abyss, when he's locked up there. So this phrase, a thousand years, we find it three other times in other passages, but it's six times in this chapter, six times we read about this thousand years. And every other time that's used in regard to years, it's, it always is just a long period of time. 
It may or may not be literal in that sense. All right. Peter says in first in second Peter three, eight with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So it, it might be literal and it might not be. I, I tend to think it's not exactly a thousand years. I think it's just a long time in that regard. So like other numbers in Revelation, there's a symbolic aspect to it, but that doesn't mean that it can't be taken literally. I'm not saying that. It's just one of those points that we can talk about. But what we see is that after this period of time is finished, after this millennium, thousand years, long time, whatever it may be, that he is released for a short time, it says in verse 3. All right, you see that? And then after these thousand years, then he must be released for a little while. Now... We'll talk about that again in just a second when we get down to verse 7. But we probably just need to, okay, there's an elephant in the room here. What in the world does that mean? And I appreciate what one commentator said. Mount said this, apparently a thousand years of confinement does not alter Satan's plans. Nor does a thousand years of freedom from the influence of wickedness change people's basic tendency to rebel against their creator. Well, that's that's an important insight, I think. So Satan is bound. Look at verses four through six. We have this millennial reign. By the way, this is not getting any clearer. All right. It gets cloudier and cloudier as we get into parts of these passages, at least for this old mountain boy. I'm 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 dazed and confused. I feel like Mike's, you know, anyway, never mind. Then I saw the thrones. And seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What is clear in this verse is that saints will reign. We've seen this throughout Revelation. We've seen it at other passages. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 that he said that the twelve apostles would sit on twelve thrones and would judge the tribes of Israel. Back in chapter 2, Jesus promised, The one who conquers and keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. In Revelation chapter 3, To the one who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul says, Here's a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign Revelation chapter 5, it said that the followers of the Lamb shall reign on the earth. So I don't understand the details. Some hold that during this millennial period of time, as people are living and procreating and giving birth, that those who reign with Christ will reign over those in some way. Some see it as simply an eternal reign, uh, uh, you know, this sim- symbolic, if you will, of our reign with Christ. I don't, I don't understand the details, and I don't really think the details of that are that important. Here's what is clear to me. This is a great reversal of what the world has been doing and what will happen in the end. 
Because these saints who first heard this letter read to them from John were being judged daily. People in their church family were being brought before the magistrates and were being martyred for their faith. Those in John's day who got this letter first were laying down their lives, but they weren't loving their lives more than they were Jesus, we saw earlier in Revelation. And so they were suffering in a way that we have little understanding of here in the United States for their faith. And they were being judged regularly because of that. And here John says there will be a reversal. You will sit on the thrones. And those who have judged you incorrectly, you will judge in righteousness because you will judge with your righteous king. So there is a reversal there that should give them and us great hope. Great hope. It says the saints will be raised. John saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. And he saw those who had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They had not worshipped the beast. And he saw them living and reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And so some hold the position that this is the martyrs that we saw earlier in Revelation 6. This is those who up until this point in time have had their lives taken because they loved Jesus more than they loved living. Because they did not go the way of the world but stuck with God and his word. And they laid down their lives. And so some see it in that regard. Some see it as all of the church. Those who are raised. Those who have not worshipped the beast. Those who are sealed in the blood of Jesus. Instead of wearing the mark of the beast. As we saw earlier. They love not their lives unto death. These are faithful believers. who, Who we've seen throughout the book of Revelation. And now that faithfulness is being rewarded. Okay. They are raised. John calls this the first resurrection. One commentator said it is a bodily resurrection in kind and the first resurrection in time. All right. So what do you say is what he what he means by that is, in fact, it says later on, the rest of the dead unbelieving unbelievers are not raised yet. That, that's pretty clear in the text. They're not raised yet until later on. After the millennium, and then they'll stand before God and be judged. And we'll see more of this next week. Now, amillennialists say that this is not a physical resurrection that John is talking about here. That it's, that it's, it's spiritual. It's symbolic. They hold the position that they came to life is not a bodily resurrection, but it's what happens when we trust Jesus. We're given a new life. We're brought to life in Christ. And through faith in Christ, we have a spiritual resurrection. Premillennialists would say, no, this is a physical resurrection from the dead. And they are being raised up by Christ and joining together with him as he rules and reigns during the millennium. Believers in Jesus will experience this, whichever one it is. Unbelievers will not. That's, that's the important thing we need to see here. All right? Unbelievers, there's no place where you ever hear the phrase a second resurrection. All you hear is second death. And it's an eternal death. Believers are raised to life. Unbelievers are raised to a second death. And there's a promise in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What a beautiful summary of where you're headed if you are in Christ today. What a beautiful picture. What a blessing this is. We are called blessed we are happy. We are fortunate. We are we are so so prosperous, if you will. Under Christ, we are holy, set apart for God, it says. 
And it says that we are sharing in the very resurrection of Christ. I believe that's what I understand it to say. That Jesus was the firstborn from the dead and we who follow Christ in faith will be raised like him. That's the promise that we have throughout the New Testament. And so here, these other blessings come. Over these, it says, the second death has no power. There will not be some other condemnation. There will not be some other death to us. We are alive in Christ and will be forevermore. It also says that we will be priest of God and of Christ. I think that carries part of the idea of what it means to rule and reign. That the ideal king in the Old Testament was a king and a priest. He was sitting and serving and reigning, but also sitting and serving God as a priest and serving on behalf of God before the people. And we as God's people will be in that position for all of eternity. And they will reign with him for a thousand years, it says. Amen. Now look at the last part, starting in verse 7. This isn't getting any clearer, okay? When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, together them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. I love it. One commentator says this is Satan's last tour of deception. Last tour of deception. All right. So Satan is released, this text says. And it seems that he travels over the face of the earth. And he's given the freedom for this short period of time, however long this short period of time, is to roam the four corners of the earth and to deceive. And deceive he does. He goes to the ends of the earth. And the model given for us there, the pattern that's given for us, comes from Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, where Gog and Magog are used there as a reference to those Gentile rulers from distant parts of the earth that are assembling together these unbelievers to come against God and his people. That's what's going on in Ezekiel. And this same image is given here, symbolizes these last, this last effort of Satan to gather this army. And it's a big army, as much as the sands of the sea. And they're coming from distant parts of the earth to come against Christ and his people. And they are ready to defy him and ready to come against him. And you know what's amazing about this? is that if, if we hold to this position that, that this rule and reign of Jesus is going on on the earth at this time, that in spite of Jesus' physical rule and reign on the earth, in the end, the human heart will still rebel against him, still come against him. Andy Davis says this, this may well be the most significant purpose of the millennial kingdom. If you're looking at it from a premillennial standpoint, I'd say. This may well be the most significant purpose of the millennial kingdom. To show how stubborn and rebellious the human heart is. How deep-rooted is our sin. And after the most perfect error in the history of the planet Earth, people still hate Christ and God and want to fight them. Christ actively ruling physically in the most blessed world one can imagine, and yet still the indwelling sin and the seed of the unconverted spreads like cancer, and Satan is able to rouse one more round of rebellion. That's what it seems to, to say there from that position, okay? From the premillennial position, that's, that's what it says here. And Satan and his army are finally defeated, though, it says in verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. John MacArthur said, this isn't a battle, it's an execution. 
And it is. Boom, it's over. Can't snap my fingers. It's over. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan's army is defeated by God, fire from heaven. Now, an amillennialist will say this is just a recap of the final battle that we've seen already a couple of other times in the book of Revelation. This is just a different perspective on it. And fire like Sodom and Gomorrah come and just a foretaste of, of hell. Whatever, Satan gets what he deserves in the end. All these centuries of opposing God and coming against his people, he, he ultimately gets what he deserves. Now, here's, here's, here's something I want us to think about for just a second. I posted earlier this week, actually, the thing was several years old. I went back and looked through my sermons from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 65, we have, and I went back and read my sermon and went back through the sermon prep that I'd done and went back and looked at the worship preparation guide. And what I posted this week, I took Isaiah 65 out of it and put Revelation chapter 20 in it. It was just the same words. It was the same ideas, the same concept. But there's issues there. It's, it's not that simple in a way. Let me, let me just read it. I, I do think it's important that I take the time to read this passage in Isaiah and, and then just con- give you a context for it because we will look at it again in the next chapter. In, in Isaiah chapter 65, listen to what God says through the prophet. He says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, nor an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build or inhabit, they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall enjoy long the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children in calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before I call, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw with the ox, like we read earlier in chapter 11. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. Back when I preached through this, in Revel- in, when we were going through the book of Isaiah, I went and, and, and we looked forward to Revelation chapter 22. And, and some hold the position that this is an explanation, if you will, or a description of the millennial kingdom. But there's issues there. The amillennials, this is where the amillennialists will shoot holes in a premillennial position. You're saying that Jesus is going to reign and people still die? Even though they live to be a hundred years old? Is, and, and that's what the text seems to say. Now, back when I preached Isaiah, my answer to that was, Isaiah used the language of his day and understanding. And 
in, in, in one sense, his, his idea that someone's going to live to be over 100 was just his way of saying death will be squelched. Okay, that's a different discussion. I'm not going to preach through the book of Isaiah again. Um, but here's this picture of a, a new kind of joy, a new kind of longevity, satisfaction like we don't know now, security like we don't know now, intimacy with God like we don't know now, an understanding like we don't have now. And that seems to describe, that certainly describes in Isaiah 65 what we see here in the book of Revelation. The question is, is it the millennial period or is it the new heavens and the new earth? So as we think through these things and work through these things, our tendency may be church to back away. As a, you know, as, as, a, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, uh, that's, that's just hard stuff. I'm not going to press into that. And let me encourage you to not be lazy and do that. Press in. Press in. Read people who may not hold the same position you think you hold. Press in and read what others have to say about this. We agree. Every, everybody agrees. Jesus is coming again. But we don't always agree on the details that we see here in this passage in Revelation. So let me just give you a couple of points to kind of think about, pray through, and use as, as application, okay? Again, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, or just panmillennial, it's all going to pan out in the end. Okay? It doesn't matter which of those four you hold. All right? In, in the end, that part of it really doesn't matter. Understand that God has purposed and planned for the salvation of lost rebels like Gerald and you. He has, he has planned from before the foundation of the world for that to take place. And run to Jesus. Don't walk to him, run to him, because as he has planned for that salvation, he has also planned and purposed for the judgment of those who refuse that grace. And so come to Christ. Again, I'll say it, only believers share in the first resurrection. Unbelievers are raised to eternal death, to eternal damnation. So come to Jesus today. Secondly, regardless of our views, we know that Jesus is going to come. And we know that that return is going to be sudden, it's going to be personal, and it's going to be visible. And so we should be praying like John does at the end of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Wayne Grudem says this in his Systematic Theology book. And I was, I was convicted by this as I read it this week. The more Christians are caught up in enjoying the good things of this life, the more they will neglect genuine Christian fellowship and their personal relationship with Christ, and the less they will long for his return. We can't pray, come Lord Jesus, and be infatuated and influenced by the things of this world. And so, he's going to come again. In Life Group, we're going to ask you to think about this question. How would a growing attitude and an understanding of what it means to long for the return of Christ change the way we live and think and love every day? How's that going to change us? How does that attitude change our affections? 
So regardless, know that Jesus is coming back and long for it. Pray for it. Thirdly, until he comes, it's important, I think, that we remember the, the words of, of Peter in Second Peter. Let me read it to you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter is talking about the new heavens and the new earth that, that are now existing. And he says will be destroyed by fire. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, with the Lord one day is a thousand years. Okay, a thousand literal years? I don't know. It's a long time, though. It's a long time. And a thousand years is his one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and the heavens will pass away with a roar and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. That's what we've seen in the book of Revelation thus far. So what we say? Verse 11, since these things are thus to be, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away and burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So until he comes, we're called to be filled with hope. We're called to be filled with holiness and we're called to be evangelistic. We're called to reach out to those that we know that as far as we know, don't know Jesus. And the only thing they have to look forward to is eternal death. That's their resurrection. And Jesus has come that they can have life. And he's called us to be ministers of that reconciliation and to take that message of life out there. So until he comes, that's the calling that he's given us. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you will help us to hunger and thirst after your righteousness, that you will cause us to hunger and thirst to know you, Lord Jesus, more. Even the mysterious things about you that seem hard to understand, Father, help us as, as brothers and sisters in Christ to recognize the complexity of your word, the mystery of it, Lord, the depth of it, and understand that there's many things in here that we just may not get. And, and even if we do feel like we get it, there's going to be people around us that are going to get it differently. So, Lord, help us, I pray, be people who are people of the main thing. Lord, that our eyes are fixed on Jesus, who came for us in grace and mercy first time, and will come again in power and glory a second time. And help us as brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, to be united about that love that binds us together, the gospel that gives us an urgency, a purpose in life. And, Lord, help us walk together in unity toward that end. Father, the world around us is divided enough. So help us, Lord, point them to Jesus, the one who came, lived, died, a substitutionary death, was raised in victory and glory and will come again in the same way. So Lord, help us, I pray, to be hope-filled, compassionate-filled, and quick to give the reason for the hope that we have. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.